Hello, everybody. Now, if you were listening to, uh, well, if you listened all the way to the end of last week's episode, you'll know that both Tone and I were unavailable for this episode. So I uh, I hinted at the fact that uh, Alex may be providing something a little special this week. Well, uh, a little MP3 came thundering into my mailbox yesterday, and what you're about to hear is that very MP3. It is a podcast that Alex has wanted to do for quite a long time. So, without further ado, over to you, Alex. Hello, and welcome to a brand new podcast. This podcast is all about Sherlock Holmes, so therefore, it's called The Sherlock Holmes Podcast. In the year 1878, I took my degree of Doctor of Medicine at the University of London and proceeded to Netley to go through the course prescribed for surgeons in the army. Those are the opening words to a new novel by a relatively unknown author. The author, Arthur Conan Doyle, the novel, A Study in Scarlet. This was the first introduction to Sherlock Holmes and his companion Dr. Watson. The story first appeared in the Beaton's Christmas Annual in 1887, having been written the previous year. It wasn't an immediate success. Since that novel, however, a further three novels and 56 short stories were written. Using the Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson characters, hundreds of films, thousands of TV shows, radio plays, short stories novels and theatre productions have been made in many countries and in many languages. Most countries have their own Sherlock and Watson and everybody has their own favourite and sees them slightly differently in their own minds. These literary characters are more real to some than many actual people from history. Sherlock Holmes still remains and I believe always will remain forever one of the most popular and interesting characters in all of world literature. So what is it that gives Sherlock his enduring appeal? Yes, he is very bright, but only on subjects that he's interested in. He has a strong moral compass, but only when the victim of a crime is worthy of his respect. He has loyalty to his friend, but continues to berate him for his lack of intelligence, even though he is a medical doctor. He is as flawed as he is brilliant, lacks some of the most basic skills of humanity, yet we were willing to overlook them because he is so very special. He is the friend we'd all like, but we know he will embarrass us at some point. He has all the intellectual skills we could want for ourselves, with the permission and acceptance to be as selfish to others as he likes. He himself is as much a mystery as the cases that he solves. Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle was equally as interesting as the characters that he created. A doctor trained at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, a novelist, a short story writer, a poet, a spiritualist, a political candidate and a campaigner to correct criminal injustices. Conan Doyle was also a keen sportsman. He played football as a goalkeeper and he played cricket for the Marylebone Cricket Club. 
He played 10 first-class cricket matches, mainly as a batsman. But as a bowler, he only got one wicket. The wicket of W.G. Grace. Conan Doyle was married twice and had five children. He was a major celebrity in his time, and he was frequently in the newspapers, with his many celebrity friends and his many celebrity causes. Let's start by introducing you to my co-host, Sarah Jane. Good day, Sarah. How are you? Hello, Alex. Right. Hi, Sarah. Now, let's just let everybody know why this came about. Um, I've known Sarah for quite some time uh, through mainly tech podcasting and lots of socialising and drinking, which I'm sure we'll come back to at a later date. It's probably not, not that much, actually. No. Okay, no. let's pretend. <laughs> let's pretend that neither of us do any of that. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Now, one of the many things Sarah and I have in common is a, a great passion and, dare I say, love for the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, and especially and mainly his Sherlock Holmes series. So, after putting it off for seems like years and years and years, we've decided to put together a pilot um, using the Airways or Airwaves logo. Um, and facilities and we're hoping this will work out really well and we're hoping you'll all come back to us and tell us how good or I suppose if it's not good we'd like to know that as well but you know if if you think it's good and you think it's worth continuing we'd be very very grateful so without any further ado Sarah how and when did you first get into Sherlock Holmes? Do you know I was thinking about this when, when we were talking about how to the starting point and I actually struggled to thought, to remember exactly when it was. However, and I, I have a feeling it might have been seeing Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce on television in the 70s. Um, well, what I do remember as the starting point is actually starting to read the books. And you know that thing when you discover a, a new author or a new character that you like and then discover that there's loads of books and it's just absolutely fabulous feeling. Right. It was a bit like that for me. And I've still got the original books. That I actually first read them. They're, they're you know, they're, they're cheapish paperbacks, but they, you know, they're quite, they're as much as important to me as anything else I've actually got because I know that's how I read them when I read them for the first time. Okay, um, so, were you? Uh, did you start with the novels, or did you start like the rest of us lazy people with the short stories? Um, I think I remember. I think the first one I read was The Hound of the Baskervilles. Well, that's quite a, quite a book. And um, and I did have a preference for the um, the novels before I got into the short stories. Um, however, it's it's definitely I, I you know it's equal between the two. And on on the whole, these days I actually prefer the short stories because you can dip into them a lot easier. Yeah, sure. But uh, and I mean there is no chronological order as such, so you can dip in and out whatever story you want whenever you yeah. want. I, I mean, you know, it's. it's it was like before Christmas um, when we were when we were in Ireland, and I had this sudden. It was around Christmas Eve, and I had this sudden desire to listen to the Blue Carbuncle because there's a fantastic part at the beginning of the book where the whole story is based around sort of two, two days and a day before Christmas. I love the bit at the beginning when Holmes and Watson are talking about Henry Baker's hat. Quite, they, yeah. Conan Doyle must have had a lot of fun writing that. Yeah, I always used to sort of picture this great big goose laying on a sideboard exactly yeah there was something very special about that but it was also i don't know it's it was very christmasy it was almost like 
the way he, I mean, I know we're going into a story, but the way he wrote that story, it was like there was nobody else in the world other than the characters that he spoke about at that time. Yes. It, it was very, very quiet, and it was how we perceive history. Now, I was thinking about when I came to it, and I'm sure the first thing I ever did was see um, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce. I'm sure it was. Um, I remember the things in the 70s, but I was young enough that my parents really didn't want me watching sort of Hound of the Baskervilles in, you know, when I was sort of under 10, because, you know, it was quite a frightening story, really. It sounds like you came to it before I did. Well, possibly. I was very young, but my parents and my older brother um, loved it. And uh, I, I remember as a child, there was a coffee table book, and it was, incidentally, it was what I bought recently because I found a second-hand copy of it. But it was a reproduction of the original stories as printed with the original pictures. Oh, wow. And so I came to it in a funny way, sort of with the pictures of the stories in my head. Mm. And that that's, I'm not sure, that was the first adult books I ever read. Um, I'm, I'm sort of told which ones I could read and which ones I couldn't read. And in a funny way, I read The Sussex Vampire when I was really little. Or rather, that's quite, quite little. That's quite a... Um, it's quite a story. Yeah, I know. I was and I still don't... I still don't like, it's the only story I don't like in the whole of the canon is The Sussex Vampire. And it sort of stuck with me because I possibly read it too young. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I know I've got a dislike for that story and there's nothing actually wrong with the story. It's actually quite a well-written story. Yeah. But I don't like it because of when I came to it. But yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about this because I knew I was going to ask you. And sort of, it sort of brings up the question, why? Did we like Sherlock Holmes? As opposed to, okay, we came to it, we enjoyed it. But what was it we liked about it? And I sort of thought to myself, there's um, a strange, and it's a strange word to use, it's like a romanticism about Victorian times. I, I, think, I think that is part of it. I mean, for me, it was also that I've always um, really enjoyed uh, and really been fascinated by forensic science. Yeah. And the, the methods that Holmes employed were completely logic. And I know when, when we read it now and you think, well, why weren't they doing this before? Conan Doyle wrote those stories and, you know, the police adopted those sort of methods. Um, it, it's, it's just difficult. It's just imagine. It's just impossible to imagine that. But for me, that was that was part of the story as well. But Conan Doyle actually sought out methods from France because France were quite ahead in their time for forensic science and he sort of looked around the world reading stories and reading actual um, you know court cases and stuff and found these techniques and added them I mean most police officers at the time may have heard about these because oh you know these funny new things they're doing in France but it wasn't actually popularized until Conan Doyle wrote about them Never invented them, but he did bring them to the general public and the police's eyes at the time, which is quite... Yeah, and of course Conan Doyle was famously involved in solving two cases himself. Yeah. Um, he was also, I mean, that's another thing with Conan Doyle. He, as we heard in our introduction, he was as interesting and bizarre, maybe, as Holmes. Um some of his ideas, I mean, you can believe in spiritualism, but, you know, he would write to the government 
asking them why soldiers were doing this and why and telling them how their military campaigns should be fought. And, you know, I mean, it turns out in most cases he was right because he came to it from a pure place of logic. Mm. But um, it wasn't until sort of towards the end of his life where I don't think anyone actually took any notice of him, but because he was so well known and publicised his thoughts so much, governments had to be seen to be paying attention, if nothing else. Yes. Um, but, I mean, going back to the romanticism of it, I quite, I've always liked the fact that even the worst baddie was never rude. You know, there was a, there was a... Weren't they? Yeah, but there was like, for instance, there was a, a boxer sent round to beat up Holmes in one of the episodes. And the way he spoke to Holmes <clears throat> was incredible. It was, I'm going to have to beat you up because I have no choice. But it was done in the most respectful and polite way possible. I mean, it, it turned out that the beating wasn't forthcoming anyway. But I, I just found that it didn't need the violence. Very, very, very few violent acts were ever played out in yeah. all of Sherlock Holmes. There was a lot of there was a lot of people, a lot of times that people showed their strength rather than necessarily showed it on another person. For instance, Quite, yeah, Rhymes yeah. I mean, bending pokers and various things. Speckled band, yes. Yeah, um, and I, I do like that. And it also meant when you did read a story or there was a character that actually acted out in some way, it was so much bigger. There was almost a shock factor in the fact that whoa, that person has actually been violent. Mm. And when, and when people were done to death, they were always, you always arrived and it, the, uh, it had been done. Or, you know, you never really witnessed that many crimes themselves. I mean, I always thought it was quite funny that, you, you know, thinking about Sherlock Holmes's arch rival, Professor Moriarty, and what happened in the final problem with the way that Moriarty sent that note to Watson, that there sure. was a... Um, patient ill at the hotel and to you know so that he wasn't there and I always thought well you know if he was a, if he was a real baddie he would he would have just gone up to Holmes found him and just gone bang like that and shot him yeah quite but he wasn't he was like no no we're going to have a discussion and we're going to talk about it and we're going to wrestle right over the Reichenbach Falls yeah but there was it, like a duel type quality it's to very much like that sort of thing yes but there always was i mean you always felt that holmes and moriarty could have sorted out their differences over a game of chess and they could have made a gentleman's agreement that whichever one lost would never bother the other one in whatever they was they would you had that feeling i think there was a certain element of chess that went on i mean in that again in the final problem there was a a part where um, Holmes, Holmes explains to Watson when Holmes and Watson, uh, sorry, Holmes and Moriarty came together right at the start of the story, and he says about um, you really must withdraw, and he says I think your answer has probably crossed your mind, and in which case my response has already crossed yours. Quite, yeah. So that's so much like a game of chess, just just they're both showing their intellect and how they know that each other will work. Talking of Moriarty, because, you know, in, in Holmes, how many characters we got that really stand, obviously, Holmes and Watson, you know, Mrs. Hudson, um, Lestrade. There's, uh, there's a whole, there's Gregson, there's yeah. Bradstreet, there's... there's but they're, they're not main characters, so maybe Lestrade, he is really, and maybe Gregson, because I like the interplay between Lestrade and Gregson, yeah, always trying to get one up on each other. Yeah. And then Moriarty. 
And the thing is, I like about Moriarty, you always believe he commits crimes for not necessarily to be bad. It's just the only avenue left for him to use his great intellect. Indeed. You look at it and you go, well, you don't need to commit crime. You're clever enough to have everything you'd ever want anyway. But I think that there's an element of Moriarty that's like Holmes, which we see in several stories Quite where enough. the everyday minutiae bores, bores him to death. And it, that's why he resorts to um, injecting cocaine and everything else, because he can't stand the minutiae. And I think Moriarty was exactly the same. When you've got somebody that's that brilliant, they need things to stimulate them. Quiet. And a, a final interesting thing about Moriarty, my understanding is his name came from a fellow student that Conan Doyle had with him when he was a child in class. So when he was in primary school, there was a fellow student in there called Moriarty. Now, that does beg the question whether he liked Moriarty, disliked Moriarty. That's a good question, actually, yes. Or was he fed up with Moriarty always putting his hand up and getting the question right? Mm. I understand that you are a member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. I am, yes, I am. Yes, I've been a, a member on and off for, ooh, must be 30-odd years. I had a gap in the middle uh, when I let my membership lap, but, lapse. But, uh, yes, I've, I've, I must admit, I'm not particularly... I don't actually um, go to events very often. Um, went to the film evening in November, which was fun. Um, was it October? I can't remember. I think it. Was, I think it might have been October actually. But yes, it's it is it is it's quite good fun. There are probably actually bigger organisations or um, societies around, but this is London. Surely the the London Society the, must the be the daddy of them all. Sherlock Holmes Society of London was was formed at the same time as the Baker Street Regulars in New York, which right. was in 1934. However, the Sherlock, original Sherlock Holmes Society was disbanded in 1937, I think it was, and then reformed again in 1951, and, and it's now in the form that it was when it was for, reformed in 1951. But there's so many different societies around the world. I was reading something the other day. Apparently, the Japanese society has over 80,000 members. That's sort of you know where I was coming to with all of the Sherlock Holmes. And again, going back to the introduction, the language... It, you know, whatever language it's in, it seems irrelevant. Whoever's yeah. playing the characters is completely irrelevant. There is something about these characters, even in the newer stories, it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sure there's been some really poor stories. It doesn't really seem to matter, these characters, and it doesn't matter if you come to it from today. There's something about Sherlock Holmes and, and Dr. Watson. It's got to be the two of them to make it work. There's something about that relationship with crime the the flawed nature of the characters, everything about it, and it just appeals worldwide. Mm. I suppose I'd love to be able to put my finger on it fully because then I could go away and write something and work out why these characters are so adored. Do you have any idea what makes... I mean, that's the question. What does make Sherlock Holmes so popular? I, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think that the when it was published in when the short stories from the adventures were first published in the Strand magazine in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. Sorry, Strand magazine was a very popular magazine, and obviously it was that that was when it really started to take off. 
Conan Doyle had had some success with um, studying Scarlet and the Sign of Four, I think that's when it really started to become popular. And in the short period of time, up to 1894, when... And let's, let's face it, we're only talking about... The Adventures and Memoirs, I think, which is the best part of 30 stories. Right, right. Over the space of three years, by the time that Conan Doyle is killing off Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls, it was unbelievable. And, and, and the pressure that Conan Doyle came on to revive Sherlock Holmes was immense. And I think that in itself, you know, like we hear of stories these days where things are done and it seems to be bad, bad publicity, but they say there's no such thing as bad publicity. And it was an early, I think it was an early form of that. I know that that wasn't Conan Doyle's motive for doing it. It was the reason he did that was because he wanted to, his historical characters to be taken as seriously as Sherlock Holmes and be as popular. Yeah. However, it it became such a noose around his neck. And he wrote, obviously, he published... Baskervilles. Baskervilles, yeah. that's right. Yes, how could I forget? <laughs> um, in the intervening period. But until they were actually, you know, he brought Holmes and Watson back in the empty house, he'd got a life of its own. And, you know, he, he almost had no choice. I, I, I've seen a famous cartoon picture that was drawn of Conan Doyle with a ball and chain around his neck. Sorry, yeah. around his ankle. And he's sitting there all, like, you know, unhappy. And it's all about, because he's seeing that Sherlock Holmes is, Although it's making him fam- famous and making him lots of money, by certainly by then it is, he wasn't as happy about it. It was a sort of popularist thing, which he wanted to be taken more seriously for sure. his other characters. I think it was the American publishers that came in. Now, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was something like £25,000, and that's what they offered him to carry on. Now, this is the early part of the 20th century. Yes. £25,000 would have bought you three or four houses in Eaton Square. Mm. It was an astronomical amount of money. Yes. And I, my understanding is he, at the time, he was, well, how much more money do I need? And he still didn't want to do it. But his family sort of pointed out that, you know, sometimes things come along and you really can't refuse. So he, you know, he very reluctantly, I mean, incredibly reluctantly, came back but again as a great writer that first story when he came back the empty house was an incredibly brilliant way of reviving his character as we know it, with modern interpretations some other people have tried to uh, who've done sherlock haven't managed to even bother to explain how a character once thought to be dead is no longer dead i i i, I must admit I'd, i'm sure other people have asked the same question there is a bit of me that thinks that when Conan Doyle wrote The Final Problem and killed off Holmes, he left it in such a way that there is absolutely no way that he could not bring him back. Because I don't know if there was absolutely no way. They, found, they, they, they never found Holmes' body. No, quite. I understand. Uh, and he... I, there's a bit of me that, a bit of me, and I'm sure other people have thought the same, that he left it open just in case. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree that when he wrote that, he wrote it open-ended. Mm. There was a decision. Never quite having the guts to kill it off completely. And, you know, let's be thankful that he had that thought in his mind. I'd love to see, I mean, I don't think these things exist, but I'd love to see the original draft before it got played with, to see how it really ended. 
because it, it does seem to be that... What, the final problem? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a first draft ending to me. Mm. But, you know, maybe there was another ten lines in it that he decided to take out before it went public. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, I'm, look, all I can say is I'm really grateful that he did oh, no. non-end it, if you like. And it, it would have been 30-odd short stories and two novels if that had been the end of it. And there's an awful lot that we would have missed out on. And they are... I, don't, I think most of, the, if you like, the, the second tranche of short s- stories, I don't think they're, they're not necessarily as complicated and not necessarily as well put together, but they are, they're more about her, uh, Holmes' personality, the second lot. Yes, I think that's because a lot of things, there was probably more clamouring for more information about. Yeah, I mean, he, he, so all of a sudden he'll drop in about, something about his family or his background that you would have never known. It's also, just one thing on this, I think it's quite well known, but there were people in the city when Holmes went after the final problem that were walking around with black armbands. Indeed, yes. Um, People took it incredibly seriously. Hmm. The only thing I can equate it to is J.K. Rowling's fella. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. I think it's the only thing that has come anywhere near i mean i wouldn't say it is in the same realms of popularity as conan doyle was at the time but it's the only thing that has come anywhere near and i was trying to think at the time if if you had what conan doyle did now and i mean jk rowling deserves every bit of success she's ever had i think she's a wonderful woman and i think she writes what people want to read but you know can you imagine the the merchandise and the revenues and the movies and the everything that Conan Doyle would have now. I mean, I mentioned the fact that, you know, it was an astronomical amount of money that he was paid to bring him back. I think he'd be able to just build his own bank, do whatever he wanted with the Sherlock Holmes. I also think that's one of the things that is so utterly remarkable about Sherlock Holmes to us nowadays is it's public domain. Everyone has a go. If you want to write a Sherlock Holmes story, go and write a Sherlock Holmes story. There's some wonderful things that have been written in the name of Sherlock Holmes with the characters of Sherlock Holmes. And until maybe a couple of years ago, I sort of steered away from them because I was like, no, there's an original Sherlock Holmes. That's the canon. That's what we're meant to do. And that's how I I left it. There are some really good... Um, stories out there. I mean, I'm not going to get into it now, but there, there's. I've got two or three that I really like, and there's one that I've read three or four times. It's really off the wall, but for some reason, it really struck a chord with me. Okay, so not many people realise. Oh, and I'm saying not many people. I'm sure loads of people do, but maybe not everybody realises that Conan Doyle actually went on film in the 30s, was interviewed. Now, that film is available on YouTube, so please go and watch it. The thing is with that film, the audio quality isn't that exciting. But what he did at a slightly later date was re-record, not exactly the same interview, but more or less the same interview, on radio. So the audio quality is much, much greater. And we've been speculating about Conan Doyle and his thoughts on why he did things and how it all came about. So here's a short part of the interview just so you can hear it from the man's voice himself. There are two questions which my friends continually ask me. One is how I came to write Sherlock Holmes, and the other is why I became a spiritualist and about spiritualism generally. With regard to Sherlock Holmes, 
I was, when I wrote it, a young doctor, and had been educated in a very severe and critical medical school of thought, especially coming under the influence of Dr. Bell of Edinburgh, who had most remarkable powers of observation. He prided himself that when he looked at a patient, he could tell not only their disease, but very often their occupation and place of residence. Reading some detective stories, I was struck by the fact that their results were obtained in nearly every case by chance. I accept, of course, Edgar Allan Poe's splendid stories, which, though only three in number, are a model for all time. I thought I would try my hand at writing a story where the hero would treat crime as Dr. Bell treated disease, and where science would take the place of chance. The result was Sherlock Holmes, and I confess that result has surprised me very much, for I learn that many schools of detection, working in France, in Egypt, in China, and elsewhere, have admittedly founded their system upon that of Holmes. To many, he seems to be a real person, and I have had numerous letters from time to time addressed to him from all parts of the world, and the most quaint requests, including what was virtually an offer of marriage. His autograph also is much in demand. Arthur Conan Doyle's story is finished being written in the early 20. 20th century. During the break, actually, lots of people decided to take up the mantle. The most famous is the play by William Gillette. The importance of this, to me, is the fact that Conan Doyle gave it his approval. And lots of what we deem Holmesian artefacts and words and speeches and clothes and... uh, utensils. Lots of it actually came from the play. The elementary and things like that never were written by Conan Doyle, but they did appear in this play. We actually owe William Gillette some thanks for what we consider the modern-day Sherlock Holmes. I think I think elementary was used, but elementary, my dear, really? Watson, I, wasn't. Really? Okay, I'm, I'm delighted to be corrected. I always understood it wasn't, but I probably have read it and I've probably skipped straight over it when I've read it. But, yep, okay. See, that's why we have Sarah and me on here. You have Sarah for both the looks and intelligence and me because I'm recording it. Right, first film. Now, people think the first film, oh, when could that be? Sarah, tell us when the first film actually was. first film was also in 1900, at the same year as the William Gillette play. It was called Sherlock Holmes Baffled, and obviously it was a silent film. I've seen clips of it, actually. Oh, too much, too easily. What's going on? But um, I believe that was the first film. Now there is a film being re. We use the modern remastered, restored. There is a film that was found in France only a few months ago. Now, I don't think this is very. This isn't the very first film, is it? This is the film from I think it was nineteen twenty. Something like that. But it's William Gillette. This is it. This was William Gillette's movie, for want of word, of his play. See, what, another thing people may not realise that the William Gillette play, even though it started off in the early parts of the century, he carried on playing this character till well into the 30s. And it was after Conan Doyle died that he was still doing the 
William Gillette play, and he travelled the world with it. Possibly that's one of the things that helped Sherlock move around the world. I mean, he especially did it quite a lot in America, didn't he? He took it over there. Yes. Okay, so you've got films in 1900. We've got films in the 20s, maybe it was slightly earlier. We've got plays. Now, coming on, other than you know people that write their own stories, possibly the, the largest amount of Sherlock Holmes productions ever made were for radio. In, in the States, mainly, between the late 30s and... I think it really finished in the 60s, but what we're talking about here is really from the 30s to... Mid forties, hundreds probably worth thousands, but we haven't heard most of those. But hundreds and hundreds of radio plays were written in America, and it became a mainstay of public service radio. And one of the most remarkable things about the radio plays in America is you had Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce for quite a number of years playing Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson See, on the radio, uh, on film and on radio. Yes, yep. uh, seven years. Then somebody else actually took over the part of. Home yeah, there was quite Rathbone. a number that did because originally you had uh, Tom Conway, he he did it. You had John Stanley and uh, Alfred Shirley, yeah. they worked as a a pair of. But what you'd find, you'd have Holmes change, but Watson would stay the same, and then you'd have Watson change. You didn't necessarily change both characters at the same time. I think it's Tom Conway that it took me ages to realise that it wasn't Basil Rathbone. His voice and his mannerism was so similar. It took me ages to think, there's something wrong with just that one word. And then I looked up which one I was, I was like, oh, well, that'll be why. It's a completely different person. Okay, so we, we've got the radio plays, and there's hundreds of... And some of them are really lovely stories. They're really good stories. They are available, and as a little treat at the end of every show, we will be giving you one of them. But at the same time as the radio, we had the movies. Now, these are the movies that... 95% of people that know of Sherlock Holmes, these are the movies that people think about when these are the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce movies. Are you a fan? Yes, I am. I mean, I have to say, as, as, as I alluded to earlier, I think this is, as I recall, this is how I, my first adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, I remember seeing those, um, what were, war propaganda films during the Second World War that were made by Rathbone and Bruce. But they did use parts of original stories it was yeah I, I i mean when i saw them i loved them but i've come to because i'm as, as i'll allude to a bit later on I, I i'm obviously a big fan i tend to think of the canon the 60 stories as the bit and i don't like it when people chop it and change it around i don't know what it is and and as i say in stories in their own right they're great but i've, I've obviously come to realize that they are the films were very much about propaganda there was lots of references to not so much Hitler, but certainly, um, you know, to yeah, issues sure. going on at the time. But I mean, there, there was a couple of the films. Uh, the actual Adventures of Sherlock Holmes movie. I think that's my my favourite one. I think it's because it's got Moriarty in it. I, mm. I think that stands okay. But he, one of the things that always surprises me and fascinates me, because of like we say, so many people that have come to Sherlock Holmes has come to it through non Conan Doyle canon. Okay, moving forward, we've got TV. I mean, we've got other films. We've got films that have been good. We've got films that I find utterly atrocious, which we will, at a later date, I'm sure, <laughs> we will get into. A lot of the modern stories of Sherlock Holmes and a lot of the very modern stories actually take storylines out of films 
which had nothing to do with Conan Doyle. So in a funny way, Sherlock Holmes has um, gone even a stage past Conan Doyle that they're referencing something which wasn't original in the first place. There's a lot of parts of the modern Sherlock interpretations that Conan Doyle would never have recognised as anything to do with anything he ever produced. Now, personally, as I said before, it took me a while because I was like, no, it's it's canon and then maybe a few things that come on top and that's okay. I've sort of let that go. Moving on to TV. Now, I think we both share a favourite of TV. I mean, I'll ask you your favourite and I'm sure I agree. So, TV, your favourite? Uh, it's got to be Jeremy Brett. We've got Jeremy Brett. I don't know why, but some of the stories were very, very uh, loosely, if you like, based. They're supposed to be a canon. And there's parts of the Jeremy Brett stories that I'm sort of... I don't know whose imagination that was, but I don't know where that came from, but it was really strange. The Jeremy Brett, I think the problem they had is every episode started with almost a prequel to the story they were about to tell. Yes, that, that common thing i mean sure. they did that on but the, that uh, sometimes leads you down avenues that are very confusing and that they don't i don't feel they really add very much to the story of some of those prequels and there was also <laughs> some other bits i remember there was one jeremy brett story where there was tigers and various weird things going on and somewhere in the speckled band they alluded to big cats and whatever but i can't even remember the story but i remember watching that thinking i don't know who's where that's come from i can't even place where that was that was um because at the house grimesby royal it was supposed to have had other sure, animals but in it was the just ground. really weird they, they never mentioned yeah. it in the book I mean, there's just the some strange reference. ideas now i can understand people wanting to i feel like modernize and that's part of the problem i think you've got with homes you can you can do jump again we go to sherlock as it is at the moment okay the tv version of sherlock one of the things i do like about it is they have completely modernized it that their their references back and that's okay i mean that's all right but where i think a lot of these things fall down is when they try and mix and match when we've discussed the the new sherlock the first series was very good this first series was taking sherlock stories really thinking about hard but really trying to stay within the home's attitude the conan doyle attitude of sherlock i think the thing with with um sherlock was that it when i watched the first one i was looking obviously looking forward to it because it was coming up and i thought it's going to be interesting to see what moffat and gattis have done with it and how they've actually brought it to modern day you know interpretation of sherlock holmes and when i first watched it the first few minutes i was thinking okay i can see where they're going but i don't think this is going to be very good and actually, when I actually, because of what I said earlier about being a pu- somewhat of a purist about the canon, I thought, okay, fine, just let that go. Just accept that this is, if you like, how Conan Doyle, were he writing Sherlock Holmes for the first time now, this is probably what he would, how he would write it. Because, you know, you, you look at Conan Doyle was writing the stories, in, started writing the stories in the 1880s. So he was basing it on the time frame around then. Gattis and, and Moffat were doing the same thing now with a modern interpretation. So they were allowing, you know, newer influences like blogging and mobile phones and texting yeah. and stuff like that to come into it as well. And when you actually separate that, I actually thought, yeah, this is really good. And I think Cumberbatch and Freeman have done a fantastic job at putting a good interpreta- modern interpretation on that. I've gone on record as saying that the Baskerville story to me 
of the new Sherlock was possibly the weakest, but I haven't really given an awful lot of consideration to the last series yet, so maybe that would lose its crown. Yeah. I think the first series was the good one. Uh, it was the best one. The second series was okay, apart from the how the the hound story, which was <laughs> weird. Covers it quite well. Weird. I, third series. I'm sorry, Mark and and uh, Stephen, but it was awful. It really was awful, especially the one where Watson gets married. Mm, it was it so been, so it weak. Does have some issues, but you know, I'm I'm hoping for the best. I'm wishing them the best with it. Just with an additional, and I, and I know Sarah hasn't seen this yet, but. There's an American series called Elementary, which came out just after the um, the UK Sherlock series. It's very short stories. Do, does it fit in the canon in any way, shape or form? Maybe the very, very odd reference at, at very, very odd times. But again, what this has done, which I actually do like, it's taken interpretation of the characters. I mean, Watson is a lady, uh, played by Lucy Liu. It's taken an interpretation and it's gone completely its own direction and so within that respect i'm i really enjoy it he doesn't need to be called sherlock okay and his brother doesn't need to be called mycroft and you know you don't watson doesn't need to be watson and lestrade you know you don't need all that but it's a nice reference back and some of the mannerisms and some of the modern interpretations i mean he's he's a recovering drug addict rather than still taking it i i enjoy that because they've gone miles away but like I say that interpretation doesn't actually need the word Sherlock in it at all it, it's quite good again like you say I think if Conan Doyle was working today he may be working as much to that type of routine as as he did then and also he did 56 stories if if it was successful today he'd be probably told to do that every year in general we we look at this adaptations of Sherlock Holmes on Wikipedia now I will read because I must give mm. the man his, his kudos so the opening line of yep. this, the stories of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle were very popular adaptations for the stage and later film, and still later television. The Universal Sherlock Holmes 1995 by Ronald B. DeWall lists over 25,000 Holmes-related products and productions. Well, that just gives you an idea of its popularity, and also the way it does lend itself to so many other things. The idea, the characterization, the, the, the flawed genius, the, the deductive logic. We've all got our reasons for enjoying it. We've all got our bits about him we like, bits about him we don't like. I mean, would I like my sons to be like Sherlock? No, because I'd like them to be happy. But if I knew someone like Sherlock, would I like to hang around with him and see how his mind works? Of course I would. It would be fascinating. I think I'd be friends with Watson over Holmes any time, mm. have a good drink and let him tell me his anecdotes, which in a funny way is how the stories work. I think that's the good thing about the combination of the two of them, isn't it, really? Because Watson, if, 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 if Holmes was to, and he did allude to this in a few of the stories, if Holmes was to write the stories, they would be a clinical analysis. Watson is Holmes's humanity, isn't he? And Watson is his interpreter. More than his biographer, he's his his interpreter. And Watson makes all the excuses for Holmes so we don't need to. You know, Watson is us in that story. Watson is the person that, if we knew Holmes, we'd hope we could be, but we wouldn't be as patient with the man. I think that's the thing. he's He's the one watching the genius at work, watching the genius in terms of how he solves a how he solves a crime. 
the methods he employs and the way he behaves. Every now and again, I think Holmes gets this moment of lucid thought, and he looks at her, uh, he looks at Watson, and he thinks, "You know what? You know, I'm nobody without this man. You know, I'd just be another loner, sort of sitting here with a chemistry set." And I, I think I think that to me is possibly what makes the whole story worthwhile. It's a relationship between two people and together they become one incredible unit i love the fact that you know in society and absolutely rightly so we have massive respect for the intelligence of doctors you know we look at them right at the top of our group you know we are if you've become a doctor you are you are to be looked at and respected for your your genius and your skills and your humanity and all the rest of it I think I think that can be played though, because yeah, I quite I do agree, and, in that. and in some way improved on. I mean, you know, the, uh, Nigel Bruce always gets um, a lot of criticism for being seen as a sure. buffoon. It's a bit unfair. However, there is I think there is a general, as you say, there is a general tendency with Watson just to almost go along with, in most cases, what Holmes says. Which is something that I think that um, Gattis and Moffat have done really well. Is that Martin Freeman's Watson, he does stand up to Holmes a bit more. Like that, the way the way that he's doing that is actually is really good, and it adds something to it so that it's not just a one-sided. I don't want to say a one-sided relationship because that sounds so unfair to Watson, but it it, it adds more to the story, if you like, because there are times there have been times in Sherlock when Watson has said, "No, I'm sorry." Absolutely, and has really stood up to Holmes. No, you're making a fool of yourself, exactly. But he's been his conscience. One of the things I do like, and it does happen in the original canon, is when something physically happens, you know, Sherlock Holmes doesn't do anything, it's, Watson, get in there, fix that person. He's ill, he's not well, he's not this. And it's also, Watson, bring your gun, because I need, I, I need my muscle. Service. And I quite like that. I quite like the idea of Watson is the shorter, stockier. You don't get the feeling that he'd probably be any good in a fight. But it's like, I, I'm, I need to take my man. I need to take my, my bouncer with me. And I, I quite like that. Watson more or less falls in love with every woman walks through the door, which is a really good foil for the fact that the most beautiful woman in the world could walk in and, and Holmes would only notice if she had mud on her shoe. It's about the, uh, the most trusting woman right. he knows turned out to be a child killer or something like that so it's where he's he gets his idea of, of trust and, and of, of the female sex from in terms of that sort of thing and there's a conversation i can't remember which story it's in when that conversation happens between holmes and watson and holmes explains why he is the way he is towards women in which is generally very cold mm-hmm. i mean obviously everybody knows the story of irene adler's the woman because as we see in a scandal in Bohemia, it's the one where Holmes is outwitted by a woman, and therefore, you know, he's huge admiration for that, which is great. No, but generally, I mean, he do, doesn't. But do he you, doesn't trust them. Do you get the feeling of misogyny, or do you just get a feeling of, in his day, women didn't have the opportunities of education and the things that he has, and he doesn't respect men that aren't educated either. So it's not the women he doesn't respect, it's the lack of no, what he perceives as intelligence. I think it's really is about 
the fact that he it's you know he's not doing anything that's not typical for Victorian attitudes towards women. Um, I don't think he's exceptionally misogynist. I mean, we we see if there are references in a few stories to where some men are like that, but I don't see you know Holmes will always yeah. if if there's a woman in distress he would still help her out. He's not going to do anything just because she's a woman. So I think, so he could still be the gentleman in, in the typical sense of the word, it's certainly in a Victorian way. I don't think he particularly had a problem with, with that, yeah, other than the fact that he just, didn't uh, particularly we, trust We're going to need to wrap up, but it, it's just thinking about characters. Um, I know they're written characters, and I know they're interpretations, but every character, I would say, all the women, the old women are old but kind, the, the younger women are all quite intelligent and beautiful. And maybe it's my imagination, but they're always referred to... They're always a school teacher or someone has fallen in love with them. E- even the lowly women in the stories, obviously, even the ones that are supposed to be lowly along in the structure of um, Victorian ways, they are all still intelligent. The way Conan Doyle wrote it, it was almost like there's no point in writing somebody that is a half-wit. Because the moment somebody is a half-wit, then Holmes wouldn't have any interest in them anyway. You mentioned um, the Blue Carbuncle. The only half-wit in that story was the hotel porter. And he was led astray by a pretty maid that made him do his bidding. So the intelligence in that was a woman. The idiot was a man. There's countless stories where the victim was a male buffoon of some sort. They had money, they had power, they had this, that and the other, but it was always the ladies of the house that had the intelligence. There's a, there's a line in, um, there's a reference in The Dying Detective from Mrs Hudson who makes an observation of um, homes with women and he says, she said, sorry, she says that um, uh, he is remarkable in his own way because of his gentleness and courtesy in dealings with women. He disliked and distrusted the sex, but he was always a chivalrous opponent. And I think that's a pretty good description. I think that there is a chivalry to go with the romanticism of it. I think, to me, if I was going to be the perfect person I'd like to be, I'd like the intelligence of Holmes, the logical intelligence. I'd like the passion of Watson. I'd like the kindness of Watson, but I'd like the chivalry of Holmes. And if anyone can be that I mean, let's face it, Holmes was a masterful sportsman. He could fight, he could stand up for rights and wrongs, and you just, you need both of them to create one almost workable human being. I think we should call it a day with this part of the podcast. Sarah, thank you very much for being here and making this, for me, a great deal of fun, a great lot of pressure off my shoulders because I wanted to do this for ages. We have been talking about it for a long time that we should do this, so it's nice to actually get it off the ground. Okay, now, as we alluded to, or I alluded to earlier, there are loads and loads and loads of radio plays that were made uh, back in back in the day. They are all out of copyright because of when they were done, so please feel free to look along the internet or archive.org, and there's hundreds and hundreds of wonderful radio plays. But um, between us, we had a, a short discussion. And, um, well, when I say discussion, I said to Sarah, I like this, what do you think? And she went, yeah, that's fine. So uh, next next time, and I really hope there will be a next time, and please let us know if you've enjoyed it or not. Um, I'll give you a few things just as we're signing off. Um, 
But uh, next time, we'll um, Sarah will be the sole um, decision maker about the radio play we uh, we put on the end. So today, and the inaugural radio play that we are going to use will be the Bruce Partington plans. This is a Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, and it is an adaptation from one of our most favourite stories, and this is the first one we agreed on after many seconds of debate. The reason why this is in one of my, I would say, top ten Sherlock Holmes stories is because of the fact that it it features the London Underground and particularly the Metropolitan Line quite extensively. And this is at a time when the London Underground is still relatively new. Uh, The Metropolitan Line is one of very few lines. And being interested in Victorian history, it's it it just seemed a good story to pick. And that's certainly one of the reasons it's in my... Also, because it features Mycroft Holmes as well, Sherlock Holmes' brother. Just to add, I think it's the atmosphere of the story. I think it's because when people think of Victorian London, it's always smoggy, it's always dirty, it's always smoky, and it's always night time. And I think the Bruce Partington plans, the the basis for the original part of the plot, just conjures up Victorian London. The dirt and the grime, and these people immaculately dressed in their tailored outfits, ploughing through it like nothing in the world mattered. So we will just tell you where you can find us. So, Sarah, where can people find you? Best place to get hold of me is on the Twitters at Sarah Jane UK. Okay. We do have websites and things pending, and we will sort out Twitter and stuff. But you can find me at Very British View. And if you want to send any correspondence, please send it to the airwaves the same place that you send any correspondence that you do for the normal show you'd find on this slot as i say we will be hopefully bringing this if people are enjoying it so again please let us know what you think we will be bringing this as a separate entity at some point but at the moment uh, russ has been kind enough to let us hijack his slot for one week please do let us know and it's been great fun for us i hope you've enjoyed it so we'll leave you with basil rathbone and nigel bruce from the 1940s radio play, The Bruce Partington Plans. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. The makers of Grove's Bromo Quinine Tablets bring you another adventure of Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. A cold is a miserable thing. A cold may become a dangerous thing. Even a so-called light cold can take a serious turn. Be prompt, be decisive in your treatment of a cold. At the very first sign of a cold, take Grove's Bromo Quinine Tablets. Bromoquinine tablets quickly check the symptoms of a cold, quickly relieve the distress of a cold. They give you speedy results, which are very important. Don't monkey around when you can get such a dependable preparation as Grove's Bromoquinine tablets. And now, here we are again on our usual visit to Dr. Watson. He's waiting for us in his study, a cheerful blaze crackling on the hearth. 
I'm very relieved to see you, Mr. Manning. Hasn't the weather been atrocious today? I was beginning to wonder if you'd be able to get here tonight through all this fog. Yes, it certainly is what you Londoners call a regular pea super. Yes, indeed. It reminds me of the adventure of the missing submarine plans. A case that was solved in the underground. Underground? What you Americans call a, a subway. Yes, but what has a solution in a subway got to do with a foggy night? Well, you see, the affair started in weather exactly like this. It was the third week in November, the year 1895, to be exact. On Monday, a dense yellow fog had settled down upon London. On Thursday, it was still there, thicker and, and murkier than ever. At first, Holmes had turned his nervous energy to cross-indexing his huge reference books. But when, after pushing our breakfast chairs back for the, for the fourth morning, we saw the greasy brown swirl still drifting past the windows, Holmes's patience snapped. Holmes, if you must pace around in circles, I wish you'd change directions now and then. You're, you're making me dizzy. Bah! It's inexcusable, Watson. Inexcusable. No initiative. No imagination. Nothing ever gets done. If you're alluding to the inactivity in this last session of Parliament, my dear Holmes... I'm not speaking of our lawmakers, Watson, but of our lawbreakers. The London criminal is certainly a dull fellow. What makes you say that? Well, look out of the window. Ideal weather for committing a crime. The criminal advances on his intended victim practically unseen. He pounces! And disappears into thin air. <laughs> there have been numerous petty thefts, ah, I believe. Petty, petty thefts, pickpockets, ragamuffins. What's the country coming to? Now, if I were a criminal, Watson. Well, I, for one, would move to America. <laughs> oh, hello, hello. Mrs. Hudson's knocking. Excited. What's up, I wonder? Yes, Mrs. Hudson, what is it? Oh, a telegram for me. Uh, yes, sir. Very well, thank you. Oh, well, well, what's it say? Oh, wait until I open it, can't you? Ah, dear me, what next? Most unusual, Watson, most unusual. What's most unusual, Watson? What's it, sir? Well, it's from my brother, Mycroft. You remember him. He helped us solve the case of the Greek interpreter. He's coming here. Why not? What's so phenomenal about it? Why not? Why not, indeed? It's as startling as it would be to meet a tram car coming down a country lane. Yes, yes, now I come to think of it, uh, Mycroft is rather like a tram car. His rails lead from his Pall lodgings to the Diogenes Club in Whitehall. That's his circle... I wonder what upheaval could have derailed it. Doesn't the telegram explain? It says, uh, must see you about Cadogan West, coming at once. Cadogan West? Cadogan West? Why, that's the young chap who's found dead in the underground on Tuesday morning. I remember reading about it in the papers. Oh? The young man had apparently fallen out of a train and, and killed himself. He hadn't been robbed, and there was no reason to suspect violence. Quite an uninteresting case, if I remember correctly. And yet... It's serious enough to cause Mycroft to alter his habits. No, Watson. This must be an extraordinary event. Uh, do you recall any other facts about the affair? Yes, I come to think of it, there was one unusual bit about... came out of the inquest. They were unable to ascertain at what point he entered the train, because his ticket was missing. Strange. What articles were found on the body? Oh, two pounds fifteen, I believe it was, a checkbook and... Oh, yes, 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 two dress circle tickets for the Woolwich Theatre... Dated for that evening. Theater tickets, eh? Then it wasn't suicide. A man doesn't procure theater tickets for the evening on which he intends to end his life. Anything else? A small packet of technical papers. Technical papers? What kind of technical papers? The, new, the newspapers didn't say. Ah, as serious as that. 
What did the young man do? Where was he employed? He was a clerk at Woolwich Arsenal. Ah, government employee. There we have it, Watson. British government, Woolwich Arsenal, technical papers. That's why Mycroft is involved in this affair. I don't understand. No, I suppose not. Watson, have I ever told you what Mycroft is? Your brother, of course. Oh, no, 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 Watson. Do you have to be so dense? I mean, do you know what he does? Hmm? I seem to have some vague recollection that you once told me that he'd held some small office under the British government. It would be more accurate to say, in a way, that he is the British government. What? His position is unique. He made it for himself. As the tidiest and most orderly brain of any man alive, with a great capacity for storing facts and giving them the proper interpretation. The conclusions of every government department are passed on to him. He's the central exchange, the clearinghouse. Again and again, his word has decided the national policy. He thinks of nothing else. Nothing else can lure him from his contemplations. And yet he's coming here. Yes, Jupiter is descending on us today. What on earth can, can uh, happen? Uh, Watson, that sounds suspiciously like a bad pun. Ah, here he is, if I'm not mistaken, to speak for himself. Come in, come in. Hello, Mycroft. What's up? What's up? You look flustered. Most annoying business, Sherlock. Most annoying. You know how I dislike altering my habits. Extremely awkward for me to come away from the office, particularly with Siam in its present state. Oh, dear me. Yeah, sit down, Mycroft. Sit down. Uh, you know Watson, of course. Yes, yes of course. I'm trying to find a chair that I can trust to hold me. Yeah, I'd better take the sofa. If you certainly haven't got any thinner. I've never seen the Prime Minister so upset. As for the Admiralty, it's buzzing like an upset beehive. You know anything about the case? Uh, Watson just been telling me what was in the newspapers. Uh, just what were the technical papers found on the body? Sherlock, for the love of heaven, not so loud. Those papers which the wretched youth had in his pocket were none other than the plans of the Bruce Partington submarine. Oh? The submarine which would completely revolutionize naval warfare. The most important papers in our government archives. Under no circumstances could they be removed from the office. Even the chief constructor of the Navy was forced to go to Woolwich if he desired to consult them. And yet we find them in the pockets of a dead junior clerk in the heart of London. Yeah, from an official point of view, it's deplorable, my dear Mycroft. Simply deplorable. You may laugh, Sherlock, but this country won't be safe until they're recovered. But I thought you said that they were found in the pocket of this chap, Cadogan West. Ten papers taken from Woolwich. Seven were found in the pockets of Cadogan West. Three are still missing, the three essential ones. To recover those three papers is imperative. The peace of Europe depends on... Mm, nice little problem, eh, Watson? Why did Cadogan West take the papers? How did he die? How did his body reach the place where it was found? And where are the missing papers? Find the answer to those questions, Sherlock, and you'll have done your country an invaluable service. Oh, why don't you solve it yourself, Mycroft? I believe you could. Mm, possibly. But it's a question of digging out details. Give me the details and I can give you the solution from an armchair. No, when it comes to running about and cross-questioning railway guards and lying on one's face with a lens to one's eye... <laughs> no, no, that's not my major. <laughs> Besides, your, your figure prevents your taking such an undignified position, eh? <laughs> Very well. Leave that part of it to us, eh, Watson? That's <laughs> all. Good. I've got a cab waiting outside to take the place where the body was found. I can give you the details on the way. <laughs> was the official guardian of these famous papers? No less a personage than Sir James Walder, a gentleman who's grown grey in the service. His patriotism is beyond suspicion. A uh, bachelor, if I'm not mistaken, lives with his brother. Yes. He was at the house of Admiral Sinclair at Barclay Square during the whole of the evening when this accident occurred. 
The Admiral vouches for him. He's one of the two who have the only keys to save. And his key was with him all evening? Right. His key, the key to the building, and the key to the room. Hmm. Who was the man with the other key? The senior clerk, Mr. Sidney Johnson. Man of 40, married, silent, morose, with an excellent service record. Any alibi? He, too, had his key with him. Seems to have spent the evening playing a game of drafts with a green grocer around the corner from his lodgings. Of course, he has only the word of this green grocer to back him oh, up. Oh, come, come, my dear Mycroft. No class discriminations, please. The word of a green grocer is often just as good as that of an admiral. Now, what about Cadogan West? He had a good reputation. A bit hot-headed, but straight and honest. At least, everyone thought so. He was next to Sidney Johnson at the office. His duties brought him into daily personal contact with the plans. No one else ever had the handling of them. Oh, it's perfectly clear. He must have taken... Ah, not so fast, Watson. Not so fast. Who locked them up that night? Mr. Sidney Johnson. Ah. They were of value, commercially, I mean. Oh, yes. There's no doubt that West could have got several thousands for them very easily. And yet, only a small amount of money was found on the body. Perhaps the buyer took it back after he'd murdered West. Ah, what puzzles me is, how did West obtain possession of those papers? To do so, he must have had a false key. Several false keys, Sherlock. He had to open the building and the room as well. Oh, well, well, well. Several false keys, then. Let me see, let me see. Suppose West did take the papers and went into town. And on the way back to Woolwich, where he is hoping to replace the papers, he is killed and thrown from the train. But the spot where the body was found is considerably past the station for London Bridge, which is the route to Woolwich. Ah, it's interesting. Also, if young West did make an appointment with some foreign agent to sell the papers that night, why didn't he keep the evening clear? Why buy two theater tickets? Exactly. Furthermore, he actually escorted his fiancée halfway there before he disappeared. A blind. That's what it looks like to me. Why did he take the papers at all? Why not copy them out in the office and sell the copies? He certainly had plenty of opportunity to do so. And why the absence of his underground ticket? Perhaps a ticket would have shown us which station was near the agent's house. So the murderer destroyed it. Good, Watson. Very good. <laughs> and yet... I wonder. Well, here's the underground station. The railway authorities have sent a man round to show the exact place where the body was found. You won't change your mind and come with us? Well, crawling round that black hole on my hands and knees, <laughs> not very likely. Well, I shall expect a report on your efforts this evening. Uh, never expect too much, Mycroft. Never expect too much. Before we follow Holmes and Watson into the mazes of the London subway system, I have a word of advice. Every year, colds cause a lot of sickness. Every year, they cause a lot of expense and time lost from work. Always regard a cold seriously. Always treat it earnestly. At the first sign of a cold, take Grove's bromoquinine tablets. Bromoquinine tablets are famous relief for the distress of a cold. Their efficacy has been fully established. Bromoquinine tablets go right to work on a cold symptom. They don't waste any time. They don't pull any punches. They quickly relieve the misery of a cold. They help reduce the fever of a cold. Thousands of people keep bromoquinine tablets handy all winter. Thousands of people depend on them as their relief for colds. No other preparation enjoys greater confidence than bromoquinine tablets. Follow the example of millions, and at the first sign of a cold, take Grove's bromoquinine tablets. Get them at any drugstore, a few cents a box. Ask specifically for Groves, G-R-O-V-E-S, Bromo, B-R-O-M-O, Quinine, Q-U-I-N-I-N-E, Groves, Bromo, Quinine tablets.
way, sir. Step right along the tracks. But it isn't safe. Supposing a train should come shooting round that curve. Oh, that's all right, sir. There won't be another for five minutes anyway. Here we are, sir. This is where they found the body. Right here alongside the rails. Lying on its face, it was. Mm, spooky old place, eh, Holmes? Like the catacombs, only without the skeletons. Yeah. Anything in his hands when they found him? No, sir. Were they clenched? Or spread out as if he were protecting himself? No, sir. They was what you might call relaxed. Ah. What time did all this happen? Well, sir, the train he was hoisted out of, as near as we can figure, passed along here about midnight on Monday. All the carriages have been examined for signs of violence, I suppose. They didn't find nothing. Not even the missing ticket. There was a passenger to Allgate on the ordinary train. About 11.40 it was. He said he'd heard heavy thud, like something striking the line, just before the train reached this station. But it was so foggy, he said he was blessed if he could see what it was. Holmes, what's the matter? What are you staring at? The curve, Watson. What the of curve it? The rails. What of it? What do, you, what do you mean? I suppose there aren't many curves as abrupt as this. No, sir, I can't say as there is. What have curves got to do with it? Oh, an indication, Watson, merely an indication. Hmm, unique. Perfectly unique. And yet... Why not? I don't see any indications of bleeding on the line. No, sir, there wasn't any to speak of. But I understand there was a considerable wound. The bone was crashed right enough. Holmes, do you hear that? It's a train. It's coming this way. Run, sir. Run for your life. Yes, this would wear. Uh, up ahead. There's a place where the train switches off. Run, Watson, run. It's just around the curve. Well, we'll never make it. We, yes, we will. Faster, faster. Uh, there's the switch up ahead. Come on. Here comes the train now. We'll make it. We'll make it. Ah, Justin. Watson, for the love of heaven. You're on the wrong track. That was a narrow escape, Holmes. I, I must say my knees are still shaking. Look at the shoulder of my coat where you pull it there. Lucky thing for you that I did. Where are we off to now in, in this fog? Yes, it's a nice afternoon. Suppose we pay a few calls. I think Sir James Walter claims our first attention. After that, we might drop in on Miss Westbury. Miss Westbury? Who's she? She is Cadogan West's fiancée and the last person to see him alive. Holmes, we seem to be going around in circles. We've accomplished absolutely nothing so far except to get, to, to get ourselves nearly annihilated in the underground. After all, it's perfectly obvious that the young man had a quarrel with someone, in all probability the agent, to whom he sold the papers, and got himself thrown out of the railway carriage for his pay. I disagree with you, my dear Watson. His body fell from the roof of the carriage where it had been placed. Cadogan West met his death elsewhere. The roof of the train? Consider the facts, Watson. A. The curve in the tracks. The body is found at a spot where the train pitches and sways as it comes around the points. B. There was no ticket. C. There were no signs of bleeding on the line because the body had bled elsewhere. Of course. Everything fits together, but... But where was the body placed on the train? I think I can make a fair guess of that, my dear Watson. Ah, oh, here we are. This is the famous official villa of Sir James Walter. And that, if I'm not mistaken, is his brother, Colonel Valentine, just coming out of the house. What's the matter with the man? He, he looks possibly haunted. Oh, uh, pardon me, Colonel Valentine, but can you tell me if, uh, if Sir James is at home? Sir James, sir? Sir James is dead. Good heavens, dead. He died this morning. It's terrible. Terrible. How did he die? Oh, it's this horrible scandal. My brother, sir, was very sensitive of his honor. He couldn't survive the disgrace to his department. It broke his heart. Pardon me, gentlemen, I must go. It broke his heart. Most appalling development. Eh, Holmes? Uh, I wonder if his death was natural or if the poor fellow killed himself. Thank <laughs> you.
Miss Westbury, that Mr. Sherlock Holmes would like to see her. Oh, please come in, gentlemen. I'm Violet Westbury, Mr. Holmes. I've been expecting you ever since I heard you had taken the case. Please be seated. Well, thank you. Oh, Mr. Holmes, we, we must save his good name. He couldn't have done it. Cadogan was the most chivalrous patriotic gentleman on earth. He, he couldn't have done it. He would have cut his right hand off rather than sell a state secret. But the facts, my dear Miss Westbury. I admit I can't explain them. Uh, was he in need of money? No, Mr. Holmes. His need was simple and his salary very good. He'd saved several hundred pounds. We were to be married at the new year. I see. Had you noticed any signs of mental excitement? Why, well, I... well, that is... Uh... Uh, come, Miss Westbury, be frank with us. Yes, Mr. Holmes. That night, I, I had a feeling that there was something on his mind. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it, will you? We were on the way to the theater. It was a foggy night, you remember? We were walking slowly. Our way took us close to his office. Cadogan seemed thoughtful and worried. <laughs> Darling, what's the matter? You haven't said a word for the last five minutes. Have I said or done something? Of course not, Philly. It's just that I've got something on my mind. Well, why not tell me about it? Perhaps I can help. It's no use, Vi. It's too serious for me to talk about, even to you. You know, sometimes, Caddy, I feel just the least little bit jealous of that old job of yours when you're cooped up in that building all day. Oh, no, you're not going to be jealous of a building. <laughs> well, not really. But it is funny to think of a husband having secrets he can't tell his wife. Mighty important secrets, I can promise you. There's one in particular that any foreign spy would pay good money to get hold of. How thrilling. Well, I don't know. They're awfully slack about some things over there in that building, Violet. What's too slack? It would be too confounded easy for a trader to get his hands on those plans. What plan? Never mind, darling. I guess I'm getting a bit melodramatic. But there's something been worrying me. Hello, what's that? What's what? Over there, that shadow moving along the side of the building. It's a man. So that's it. I always suspected... Oh, what's the matter? You're so excited. What's wrong? Stay here, Violet. There's something I have to find out. Stay here. I waited... And waited, but he never returned. Oh, Mr. Holmes, if you could only save his honor, it, it meant so much to him. We shall do our best, Miss Westbury. This, uh, this shadow, this man moving along the building, did you see it too? I think I did, Mr. Holmes. But the night was so foggy, I can't be sure. But there must have been a man. Another man. It, it couldn't have been Cadogan. Surely character goes for something. Let us hope so. Come along, Watson. We must return home. I'm expecting an answer to some telegrams I sent Mycroft earlier this afternoon. We've done enough for one day. Holmes, where have you been all day? You left this morning before I was up. Now you've come home with your towel awry, your suit torn, and as ravenous as a wolf. <laughs> yes, I've had a bit of exercise, my dear Watson. Uh, pass me the tongue, will you? would have done you good to go along. Yes, what were you doing? Investigating the premises inhabited by foreign spies known to have been in London on last Monday. Mycroft sent me a list of them. Took a bit of doing, too. Climbing walls, breaking into cellars, prowling around rooftops. Well? I discovered there was only one residence which had the uh, proper facilities for disposing of West's body after the murder. Well, whose residence was that? It belongs to a Hugo Oberstein. The address is 13 Caulfield Gardens, Kensington. 
The gentleman himself has departed for Europe. Gone, has he? And he took the plans with him. It's, it's too late. Not necessarily, Watson. What can we do now? We're going to keep a rendezvous with the gentleman who stole and sold those plans. The assignation will take place at Mr. Oberstein's house this evening at nine. What the deuce are you talking about? Uh, these newspaper clippings. I found them in the drawer of Hugo Oberstein's desk. Read them. Hmm. The Daily Telegraph agony column. The first one says, Too complex for description. Must have full report. Terms agreed. Too payable when goods delivered. Signed, Piero. Piero, indeed. Sounds like a Mardi Gras. Now, read on, Watson. Read on. Second goes, matter presses must withdraw for unless contract completed. Piero again. And the last, dated Monday, the day the crime is committed. Monday night after nine, two taps, payment in hard cash. I say, do you think it was a submarine that, that the plans that, that he was buying? I'm almost positive. And Piero was Oberstein himself. But we'll find out for certain this evening. I've invited the gentleman who sold the papers to meet us. How? I don't understand. And so did this advertisement in today's Daily Telegraph. Tonight, same hour, same place, two taps, vitally important. Your own safety at stake. Signed, Piero, as usual. By George, if he answers that, we've, we've got him. Unless we're too late. Come along, Watson. There's no time to lose. You can take this package for a change. I'll, uh, I've been carrying it around all day. What's in it? Oh, just a jemmy, a dark lantern, a chisel, and a revolver. Nice equipment for a respectable citizen to be carrying about the streets of London. I must... Hey, you know, Watson, there are times when I suspect we aren't quite respectable. Here we are. This is Coffee Gardens. Thank heavens, it's still foggy. I shouldn't like to be caught in the act of housebreaking. Yeah. Over this wall, Watson. There's a window we can easily pry open in the back. Scale that wall? Oh, come on, hurry up, hurry up. There's no time to lose. Here, here. I'll give you a boost. Mm. Come on, up you. Oh, good. That's it. Look out, here I come. I must say, Holmes, you're as agile as a cat. <laughs> it's uncanny. This is the window. Light the lantern and give me the jimmy. One. Two. The underground runs right past here, almost on the level of these windows. I could reach out and touched it. Yes, quite convenient, wasn't it? It was here the body was placed on the roof of the train. Look out of this, uh, look out of this windowsill. Hmm? You can see the soot is blurred where they rested the body. And here, look here, look, look. This brown stain is blood. Mm, nasty, Holmes. Let's, let's get on to the house. Very well, then. Come along, come along. The window's open. Easy, easy, don't break the glass. Supposing Oberstein should happen to return home. Well, we must take our chances in this business. Come along, Watson, come along. My visitor will expect to be let in by the front door. I wish these stairs didn't, didn't squeak so. Nine o'clock. We can expect him at any moment now. You take your position on one side of the door. I'll be on the other. So we can pounce on him when he enters. I'll throw my greatcoat over his head. Oh, well, I, I wish he'd hurry. Shh, Watson. What if, what if he doesn't come? There he is. Ready now. I'll open the door. You wanted me? No, you don't. Oh. Take that! Easy, Watson, easy. All right, Holmes, I've got him. Well, let's take a look at our catch. Take the overcoat away, Watson. Right. Hi, it's, it's Colonel Valentine Walter. Sir James's brother. Quite. Well, sir, what have you to say for yourself? Why did you steal the Bruce Partington plans? Who are you... What do you know about this? I am Sherlock Holmes, and I know everything. Oh, this is terrible. I'm lost. I didn't realize their importance until my brother killed himself. 
But I need this money. I had to have it. Oberstein offered to give it to me if I'd let him see the plans. So you took an impression of your brother's key, opened the safe and procured the papers. Cadogan West saw you leaving the building, followed you here, and you killed him. No, I didn't do that. I swear I didn't do it. No? Then perhaps you'd better tell us who did murder Cadogan West and placed him on the roof of the railway carriage. I'll tell you. I promise you I will. I did the rest. I confess it, but, but not that. Very well, then. How did it happen? I got the papers, as you've discovered. Made my way through the fog until I reached the door. Once or twice, I fancied I was being followed. I could hear footsteps on the pavement behind me. Colonel Walter? Yes? You have the papers? Yes. Let me in, quick. I think someone's been following me. Yes, it's me. Yes. You can't do this, Valentine. It's treason. All right, do you hear? No, you can't sell the papers, Valentine. I won't let you. They should see. Look out, West. Uh, Check. Oh. Uh, how do you like that, my impetuous young friend? Papa Oberstein, he knows how to use a blackjack, eh? You, you, you've killed him. So? It's murder. I'm going to get out of this. Oh, no. I think different. You will come in here if you do not wish to taste a blackjack, too. But I... I... But... That is better. Oh, what can we do? They'll find the body. I have an idea. First, I look at those papers. I take the ones I want under arrest. We put in the pocket of this foolish young man. And then we give him a nice ride on top of the underground train, no? He will be the guilty one. Who will ever know? What a thoroughly unpleasant gentleman. What a pity that he got away with the papers, Dr. Watson. Oh, but he didn't. Oberstein had left a Paris forwarding address with Colonel Walters. That gentleman sent him a letter dictated by Holmes saying that he had discovered that one essential detail in the plans was missing, and that he had procured a tracing which would make it complete for a price. And did Oberstein swallow the bait? <laughs> did he swallow it? He was arrested as he got off the boat at Folkestone. Some weeks later, I learned incidentally that Holmes had spent a day at Windsor Castle and returned with a remarkably fine emerald type-in. When I asked him where he got it, he answered that it was just a small present from a certain gracious little old lady for whom he'd been able to do a... A small favor. Yes, and I think I can guess the lady's august name. Elementary, my dear Mr. Manning, elementary. I see. Ladies and gentlemen, in just a moment, Dr. Watson will be back to tell us about next week's story. In the meantime, let us repeat. Watch out for colds. At the first sign of a cold, take Grove's bromoquinine tablets. Bromoquinine tablets are made especially for the relief of colds. In other words, they're specialized medication, and that's what you want. Yes, at the very first sneeze or sniffle, go right to your druggist and get a package of Grove's bromoquinine tablets. Now, Dr. Watson, next week? Next week, I think I'll tell you the story of the lion's mane. The lion's mane? What was that, Dr. Watson? Well, the answer to that question, Mr. Manning, almost stumped Sherlock Holmes himself. Suffice it to say that they were the last words gasped out by a dying man as he lay writhing in agony on the sands of the Sussex coast. You have been listening to a Sherlock Holmes adventure Adapted from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story The Bruce Partington Plans With Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes And Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson The dramatization was by Edith Miser This program is presented from Hollywood Every week at this same time By the makers of Grove's bromoquinine tablets Quick relief for colds This is Knox Manning speaking <laughs> 
This is the National Broadcasting Company.